financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, rating the U.S. presidents who were the best and the worst about the Franklin Roosevelt administration. For one thing, he prolonged rather than solved the Great Depression. It wasn't until World War II put the nation on a war footing that the Great Depression really ended. But meanwhile, all his massive government programs and raising of taxes and so on, that just made it worse. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Author Robert Spencer is standing by. His new book, Rating America's Presidents, an America first look at who's best and who is overrated. I'm sure you'll be surprised by some of his choices for best and worst, and some no doubt you'll disagree with, but that's okay. It's a great conversation starter. Robert is the director of Jihad Watch. He's a writer and researcher and has written several books, as well as over 100 articles about jihad and Islamic terrorism. His titles include The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades. He's been studying Islamic theology, law, and history in depth since 1980. He's an adjunct fellow with the Free Congress Foundation and has consulted with the United States Central Command on Islam and Jihad and has discussed jihad, Islam, and terrorism at a workshop sponsored by the U.S. State Department and the German Foreign Ministry. Other books include Not Peace But a Sword, the Great Chasm Between Christianity and Islam, and again, his latest, Rating America's Presidents. Robert Spencer, welcome. How are you? Hey, just great. Thanks. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. There have been a number of polls. I think you counted 20 polls ranking the presidents. By what standard were they ranked in these previous polls? In the previous polls, what you have for the most part is uh, people who were internationalists, who favored big government, who favored the uh, discarding of constitutional restraints, those were the presidents who have generally been rated high. And this has even been in textbooks. Uh, we were all taught this, as a matter of fact, in schools. If you went to public schools, probably even to private schools, uh, for the most part, the histories have been written by people from a far-left point of view, and most Americans are not aware of just how pervasive that is. 
And these would be primarily academics, college professors, journalists, perhaps? Yes, uh, exactly. And But they've been setting the tune. They have been the uh, primary formulators of our understanding of history for the last generation or more. And so, again, there are standards. What were they looking for in what they would categorize as a good or successful president? Well, they're looking for a president who... Uh, believes that the United States has a responsibility before the world to ensure that uh, other countries have good governments and that uh, the strife is uh, kept to a minimum, even if it's regardless of American interests, and a president who would uh, oversee large-scale expansions of federal power, even at the expense of constitutional restraints. So under these criteria, what presidents would we typically see in the top 10, let's say? Uh, You've got uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Lyndon Johnson, um, and then uh, others uh, of the same kind. On the other side, Theodore Roosevelt, although he uh, had many admirable qualities and did many great things, at the same time he was also one who uh, was very much in favor of the expansion of the federal government. And uh, uh, in the 19th century, of course, Lincoln, uh, he's in a bit of a different category. uh, But uh, generally for the 20th century and the 21st, it's uh, people who follow this model. Um, Of course, the most recent is Barack Obama, who has been included among the greats by several uh, historians since his term of office ended. And in rating America's presidents, you point out that the the founding documents really don't say much about the office of president. What do they say? What is the role of the president? Well, they say that uh, the president should preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's actually in the oath of office. And that really sums up uh, what he's supposed to do. The president has some powers enumerated in the Constitution, like the concluding of treaties, and uh, the putting down of insurrections, which might be one that we'll see coming into play uh, in uh, the coming months in the United States. And the, uh, generally to uh, approve the decisions of the executive branch in terms of legislation, to approve or disapprove, to uh, sign bills into law or to reject them. And uh, this is basically it. The idea that the president has to take care of our health care or has to take care of uh, uh, our well-being in various other ways, provide us with cell phones, whatever. These things are uh, modern outgrowths of this massive expansion of federal power and the loss of any idea of constitutional restraint. So then your standards for rating the presidents were what? America first, uh, constitutional fidelity. America first is a principle that's been widely misunderstood and misinterpreted. Many people have identified it with xenophobia, isolationism, even racism and anti-Semitism. It has uh, none of those connections necessarily. It's simply what the president, President Trump, that is, has said that he's going to put America and Americans first. He's going to work to make America stronger, more prosperous safer, and so on. And that's going to be his fundamental priority. That ought to be the fundamental priority of every president. And insofar as it ha- as it was, then I rated them highly. And as insofar as it wasn't, then I didn't. America first. This, of course, was made famous in President Trump's inaugural speech, which was widely derided by the press, including, as you point out, in rating America's presidents by neoconservative William Crystal, who found the concept to be, I think he used the word vulgar, When did that change? When did that become verboten to suggest Americans first? That goes back to World War II, uh, when the people who were opposing our involvement in the war, which after all, of course, had been going on for two years in Europe before the United States entered after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, the people who were opposing our entry into that war were known as America Firsters. They had this America First Committee And it was marred by, for one thing, Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator, who had an open admiration for Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. 
And so you have America first being tainted with that connection, which it doesn't necessarily have at all, of course. And uh, with uh, after Pearl Harbor, the idea, even though the America First Committee disbanded at that point and endorsed our entry into the war, uh, it was still identified. The very concept was identified with rejecting our international responsibilities and even cowering in the face of attack. None of these things were true, but they uh, made the phrase a dirty word. And I think that's what William Crystal is riffing on, working from, that uh, he's assuming that America First means all sorts of things that it doesn't necessarily mean at all. So let's begin with the founding fathers, and we'll kind of group them together. So the first five presidents, I guess, because the fifth president was sort of the last of the of the founding fathers. George Washington gets a 10, and I guess we should sort of explain that you grade each president on a score of 0 to 10. You point out that Washington gets such high marks, not necessarily for what he did in office, but for what he didn't do. Explain. Well, one of the main things that he didn't do was remain in office until he died. And that's a very important principle because America has been marked by a peaceful transfer of power and the voluntary ab- uh, abandoning of power, the voluntary stepping aside of the chief executive ever since the Washington administration. This is unusual in human history and even unusual today in many parts of the world. Uh, for the most part, people who uh, attain political power have clung to it. Uh, as long as they possibly could. And of course, we see this now with some of these lifetime senators and congressmen uh, who've been in the Senate or Congress for decades and will will hang on until they're, they're dead and buried. Uh, the, this was inimical to the spirit of George Washington, which was uh, consciously imitating Cincinnatus, the Roman politician who was uh, summoned at a time of crisis, led Rome during the time of crisis, and then went back to his farm. And George Washington did the same thing. And every other president followed his precedent in uh, leaving office. Now, uh, of course, nowadays, when you've got uh, people in power for decades and decades, that principle has been lost, but it's been a fundamental cornerstone of the stability of the United States. Surprisingly, John Adams, another one of the founders, didn't do so well in your ranking. I think he scored a four, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I probably should have put him even lower. Uh, I have a lot of respect for John Adams as a human being and as a founding father, but he was not an effective president. He was not a good president. Uh, As a matter of fact, he was a disastrous president, primarily because of the Sedition Act, which uh, he instituted because he was rather thin-skinned and didn't do well with criticism. And as a result, he uh, reacted very badly when he was mocked or when he was opposed. He actually made this law, pushed this law through Congress that uh, made it a criminal offense to insult him or make fun of him or criticize him. I mean, or the the president, but he was the only one in who, uh, who was president while this act was enforced. It was repealed immediately by his successor, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and that's this is a that, it was a terrible precedent because of course we're talking about the freedom of speech and the freedom of speech is the foundation of any free society. You don't have the freedom of speech, you don't have a free society. And so right at the beginning, one of the foremost founding fathers almost did the republic in before we even got started by challenging our foremost and fundamental freedom. Thomas Jefferson, he often shows up on uh, these lists as one of the great presidents, although he scores a respectable seven. But one of his great accomplishments, the Louisiana Purchase, you say was both a positive and a negative. So give me the case for the pro and con of the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah, it's a doubtful constitutionality. Uh, Obviously, you can't really say 200 years later it shouldn't have happened. I don't... uh, have any problem with the acquisition of territory. I don't even have any problem with wars of conquest in principle. Uh, But when you're talking about constitutional fidelity, it becomes very important not to exceed those bounds because we've already seen now in American history, long after Thomas Jefferson has left office, what are the negative consequences of exceeding constitutional bounds. And uh, there is no warrant in the constitution for acquiring territory 
in the way that Jefferson did for the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, he even wanted, he was aware of this, and he wanted a constitutional amendment that would allow for this. And uh, that never came to pass. I kind of wish it had, actually, because what it ended up, what we end up with is that Jefferson set the precedent for uh, assuming that anything that is not mentioned in the Constitution, the president can do. When actually the Constitution explicitly says that anything that is not mentioned in the Constitution, the president can't do. That's what the Tenth Amendment is all about, that uh, whatever is not explicitly designated as the responsibility of the president is left to the states or to the people. And so it maybe should have been the result of a convention of the states or some other kind of action of that kind that uh, would have enabled the states to make the decision as to whether the purchase go ahead. Again, I'm not saying the purchase should not have gone ahead or was wrong in itself, but just that he exceeded the constitutional bounds, and uh, that's not been very good for America ever since. Let's talk a little bit about the vilification of the founding fathers, with the exception of Alexander Hamilton, of course, who was not president, who has been celebrated in a very popular musical, Historians today, educators, the media, have a very negative view of the Founding Fathers. They are basically depicted as slave owners and a bunch of dead white guys. When did that happen and what was the the impetus for that? It started in the 1960s. Probably the roots of it go back even farther. But in the 1960s, there began the long march through the institutions which was the, uh, the hippies' attempt to take control over the institutions that they had previously been protesting against. Uh, they decided that instead of having sit-ins and, and marching around with signs and so on, making demands of college uh, administrators, they would become the college administrators and the professors. And so one got hired, two got hired, and then they would uh, form committees that would uh, hire the next people, and they would only be people of their same point of view until eventually the colleges and universities became essentially one-party states in which only one point of view is allowed. And that point of view is uh, pretty obviously Marxist and anti-American. And so the uh, enterprise of uh, denigrating the founding fathers and uh, seeing them only as racists, as slave owners, as uh, imperialists, and so on. This uh, starts from this Marxist uh, perspective that is trying to make Americans ashamed of being Americans so that we won't defend America. Uh, I criticize, as you see, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson for various things that are quite different uh, as founding fathers, as the people, (coughs) excuse me, as the people who framed the Constitution, uh, the the Bill of Rights in particular, the Declaration of Independence, and so on, uh, they created an unparalleled uh, system, a basis, foundation for a free society. And in that sense, we owe them reverence and deep respect and gratitude. And so uh, I'm saying these guys might not have been so effective as presidents. That does not diminish their achievement as founding fathers. But the enterprise of uh, the 1619 Project, for example, that won a Pulitzer Prize, and Howard Zinn's Popular History of the United States, those are designed to make Americans hate our own country. And they've worked very well. Uh, Witness all the young people tearing down statues and so on, even of people like Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. One of the lesser-known presidents, he served one term, was a Democrat, John Tyler, scores an eight, which is interesting because, as I say, he may be a president that has escaped many people's attention, and yet here he is with an eight in rating America's presidents. Tell us a little bit about John Tyler and and why he's deserving of an eight out of ten. One of the foremost things about John Tyler is that he destroyed his own political career to save the country. And, uh, you know, would that we had some statesmen like that nowadays Uh, John Tyler was the vice presidential candidate in 1840 of the Whig Party, which was uh, the other political party besides the Democrats in those days. The Republicans had not been founded yet. 
And John, the Whig Party was in favor of a thing called the Bank of the United States, which was just that. The Bank of the United States held all the assets of the U.S. government and became sort of the first deep state. It became the uh, uh, huge, unelected, unaccountable bureaucracy that held power over the elected officials and had no way for the American people to call it to account. And they would openly bribe elected officials with, uh, of course, they were called loans, but they would essentially buy off senators and congressmen to do their bidding by giving them money. And so uh, Andrew Jackson, who was the Democrat president, faced down the bank. But when uh, William Henry Harrison died and John Tyler became president, the Whig Party tried to revive the bank. Now, Tyler has a kind of complicated history. He had actually been a Democrat and opposed Jackson on other grounds besides the bank. So he left the party and became a Whig, and they made him vice president. He became president when Harrison died. They presented to him this bill to recharter the bank, and he vetoed it, which made him it made his uh, own party enraged. And he uh, was actually the first and only president to be officially expelled from his political party while he was president of the United States. And he became a president without a party. Now, he did all that in order to stop the bank. And it was good to stop the bank because we don't need an unelected oligarchy of shadowy business officials who control things and are pulling the strings. There have, of course, been others in the United States, in the history of the United States since then. But he's to be commended for facing down that one. Right. And others, it has been argued, who attempted to face down a central bank outside of the the U.S. Treasury have ended up dead. Yes. You mentioned the Republicans, and so let's let's jump ahead to the, the first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln. I think he's, I guess, sort of a common denominator in, in that he appears in the top 10 of, of many of these polls, including yours. He scores a 10. Although it's interesting because you, you talked about those presidents that sought to increase the the power of the executive branch, one could certainly argue that Lincoln was a master at that, although it was during a civil war, so perhaps you could argue it was warranted. Why a 10? I can tell you, actually, uh, in all candidness, that uh, before I wrote this book, when I was preparing to write it, I was prepared to give Lincoln a low grade because I had heard and read some things about how he had... uh, contravened constitutional principles. And that, of course, is what this book is all about. But on closer inspection, when I was actually preparing the material about Lincoln, I saw that, yes, uh, he was, of course, facing an insurrection. One of the main problems is that he suspended the uh, right of habeas corpus. uh, That is, you can hold somebody without charge. Uh, You can't hold somebody without charge ordinarily, but he suspended that in order to uh, prevent Maryland from seceding um, they simply had some people who were leading the pro-secession forces jailed there. This is very unpleasant for us to think of nowadays, but we're not in the middle of a civil war, at least not yet. And the Constitution actually gives Congress the right to suspend habeas corpus in a time of insurrection. But the Congress was not in session. So he could have uh, just sat and waited for Congress to come back in session And in the meantime, Maryland secedes, which would have been the end of the nation because Washington would have been surrounded and there would have been no way to put down the rebellion. Or he acted. And then when he uh, when when Congress was back in session, he submitted what he had done to it and the Congress approved it. So he actually was uh, as observant of the uh, strict restrictions of the office as delineated by the Constitution as he possibly could have been under the circumstances. And more importantly, it's not just that he was the great emancipator, but he also enunciated what exactly was wrong with slavery. Now, of course, there were many abolitionists, but he enunciated the reasons why the country could not endure in the way that all the mainstream politicians had tried to make it endure in the decades before him. Going back to James Monroe, 40 years before Lincoln, you have presidents assuming that they can divide the country 
in uh, two parts, the slavery, the pro-slavery part and the free part, and that they can coexist. And uh, Lincoln explained very eloquently and movingly why, of course, quoting the Bible, a house divided against itself cannot stand, and so on. And I think that's underestimated, as well as uh, the Gettysburg Address, in uh, articulating how all the politicians before him, the presidents before him, had approached this problem in the wrong way, and that the moral aspect of it had ultimately to be confronted. It is a terrible tragedy, of course, that it uh, ended up in this great civil war, but uh, he was quite correct that these compromises were never going to hold, and the nation would not be able to stay together in that way. Also, in uh, the Gettysburg Address, he states that they're fighting the Civil War so that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Now, many people have uh, found that curious in, throughout history because, uh, of course, the Confederate states were trying to govern themselves. And so why not uh, government of those people and by those people and for those people? Uh, and, of course, the answer is that a republic has to work by the consent of the minority. If the minority always leaves the polity when it loses, then you can't have any republic. You ultimately just have anarchy and uh, absolute every man for himself kind of confusion. Because if, if the minority will not submit to the majority's rule and just leaves, then the whole thing will dissolve and then dissolve again and break up again until you have finally no unit larger than the individual. And so Lincoln was quite right that there had to be, if there was going to be representative government at all, then there had to be the putting down of that particular insurrection in order to preserve the very idea of a republic. And he, uh, he well, he saw it through. But what's extraordinary about Lincoln is his ability to articulate what exactly was at stake in all these controversies. More of my conversation with Robert Spencer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's so much more than tea at getthetea.com. Take, for example, Astaxanthin Max, the most potent antioxidant blend in the world. Astaxanthin is able to cross the blood-brain barrier and the blood-retinal barrier and concentrate in the retinal macula. Astaxanthin 
is up to 550 times stronger than vitamin E and 10 times more potent than beta carotene. With its unique blend of astaxanthin, vitamin C, bilberry leaf, tomato extract, and vitamin B12, astaxanthin max, is quickly becoming the eye healthcare supplement of choice. Get your bottle of astaxanthin max at getthetea.com and don't forget to use the code UNLIMITED on all your orders. Then you don't pay for shipping. Astaxanthin max for your eyes at getthetea.com. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Robert Spencer, the author of Rating America's Presidents, is here. I want to talk about another president that doesn't get a lot of attention. He was the second president uh, to be assassinated, and that was uh, James Garfield. You mentioned anarchists. I believe the, uh, the assailant was an anarchist. And I've heard other commentators make comparisons between Garfield and Trump. Garfield was kind of a, someone who was bucking protocol and wanted to do things his way and received a lot of criticism for that. Is that, in your estimation, a valid comparison? Yeah, it, it, uh, it uh, certainly to some degree. Uh, Charles Guiteau, who, who assassinated Garfield, uh, however, was not an anarchist. He was a stalwart, and I'll explain that. But I should note that it was William McKinley who was killed by ah, an anarchist, right. Leon right. Chalgosh. Uh, Guiteau was a stalwart, as he himself said, after he shot Garfield, he said, I am a stalwart and Arthur is now president. The stalwarts were people who believed in the spoil system, which was the idea that whenever the president came into power, he would fire all the civil service employees, all the people in the Washington bureaucracy, and replace them with people from his own party. This is how things had worked in Washington since the time of Andrew Jackson and before that. Uh, this was, that was about 60 years. But uh, at the time of Garfield, Garfield was a uh, proponent of civil service reform. This is how he was bucking the system. He wanted the Washington bureaucrats to be chosen on the basis of merit and not on the basis of party affiliation, which sounds great. Uh, in a certain sense, it, it really was a reform in those days. Uh, what happened was Guiteau, being a stalwart, shot Garfield because Arthur was a stalwart, and he figured that he could prevent the civil service reform by shooting the pro-civil service reform president and bringing in the pro-spoil system vice president. But then the pro-spoil system vice president, Arthur, crossed him up and thought he had to do what Garfield had intended to do, and civil service reform was actually enacted by Arthur. But uh, the thing about it is, in the larger sense, maybe we would have been better off at the spoil system, because uh, nowadays we see with Trump this deep state, these uh, entrenched bureaucrats who are bent on resisting and opposing his agenda so that he uh, has not been able to implement it fully. Uh, if he had been able to fire all these people and put in people who were loyal, then uh, things would be quite different. And uh, I, for my part, I don't see why any president should not be able to do that. I want to move ahead to Teddy Roosevelt, 26th president. He is <laughs> a controversial figure. He's either seen as one of the great presidents or one of the worst. Does that have to do with his desire to expand the role of the executive branch? Yeah. Uh, he did not have, as far as I'm concerned, the respect for the Constitution, for constitutional restrictions that presidents ought to have. Uh, for example, during the coal strike, there was a crippling coal strike while he was president, and it was looking like the American people were going to go into winter with many people in the northern states not being able to get coal. And so they were going to be freezing all winter. And Roosevelt said he was going to send troops to open up the coal mines that had been closed by the strike or closed as a result of the strike. Somebody told him, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional to interfere with private property in that way. And he said, to hell with the Constitution when the people want coal. And I think, you know, in a certain sense, 
I admire his uh, go-getter spirit. He was going to make sure that this problem was solved, and that's all that he was caring about. He wasn't going to be stopped by uh, legal niceties when the American people were suffering. And that's, that sounds great until you think about the fact that we need the Constitution. The Constitution was devised to protect us against tyranny. And once you establish a precedent like that, then you are opening the door for other presidents to say, to hell with the Constitution for whatever their agenda may be, however nefarious. And so I would prefer to have a president who uh, actually respected the Constitution and followed its uh, constraints didn't just run over them when they were inconvenient and no additional brownie points for teddy because of his dramatic expansion of national parks or busting up uh, trusts and so forth yeah actually i gave him favorable marks for the busting of the trusts uh that's a bit of a vexed issue because uh uh, people there the the hard line free enterprise supporters with whom I'm quite sympathetic say that uh, the market will always correct itself and monopolies will fail in the long run if uh, they do not respect their customers or if they do not provide their customers with quality product. And that that certainly is, is true in theory, but in practice, you have the ability of a monopoly to do immense harm in the short term. And having some government oversight over that doesn't seem to me to be uh, unwise. Witness, for example, the present social media giants, uh, Google, YouTube, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and so on. They exercise more power over the means of communication today than the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany could ever have dreamed of exercising. And so it would seem to me that we do need somebody with the trust-busting spirit of Teddy Roosevelt to come in and say that, particularly in light of the fact that they are systematically silencing dissidents from the leftist agenda, that they are going to lose their monopoly status and be broken up. AT&T was broken up, so you know I don't know why Facebook can't be. So on to uh, Teddy's fifth cousin, Franklin Roosevelt. And lest people think that this is a a very partisan poll, you have Republicans like Herbert Hoover, who gets a zero, was a Republican, and then Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, often in the top three, four presidents in many of these polls, he gets a one. Your evaluation, disastrous for America. Explain. He gets a one. Uh, The one is because he was an inspiring leader during World War II. He got a great given that he made a lot, gave a lot of Americans heart in in, an extraordinarily difficult time. And so um, my hat's off to him for that. But that's really all the all about about the only good you can say about the Roosevelt administration, the Franklin Roosevelt administration. For one thing, uh, he prolonged rather than solved the Great Depression. It wasn't until World War Two. Uh, put the nation on a war footing, on a uh, war economy, that the Great Depression really ended. But meanwhile, all his uh, massive government programs and uh, raising of taxes and so on, that just made it worse. And uh, Hoover actually started that. That's why Hoover gets a zero. Uh, The election of 1932 was widely portrayed as the election between small government and big government or uh, whether the uh, depression was going to be solved by doing nothing and let the uh, economy correct itself or by massive government intervention. But actually, both Hoover and Roosevelt were in favor of and implemented massive government intervention. Uh, FDR also made massive mistakes during World War II at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end of the war. Uh, at the beginning, he uh antagonized the empire of Japan in several ways and yet did not. And and so he had every reason to know that an attack was coming. I'm not saying he knew that Pearl Harbor was going to happen on December 7th. I found no evidence for that, but uh, there was plenty of evidence that he knew that the Japanese were very upset, considered America a hostile adversary and were likely to start a war. And he did nothing to 
protect our fleet. He could have had our fleet in a much better position than out in the open and vulnerable on that December 7th, 1941. And so the fleet was destroyed and many people were killed because of his uh, cavalier frivolous attitude toward making adequate preparations. In the middle of the war, when there were Nazis, uh, I should say rather, there were German generals that hated Hitler and were putting out feelers for uh, a peace with the West if they uh, killed Hitler and exited the war. Uh, They uh, got the wind taken out of their sails by Roosevelt when he said that there would be unconditional surrender and nothing else. And so then the the German opposition thought, well, we don't really have any options then. Uh, We fight on to the death because uh, they're going to destroy us either way, and we're not going to get a better deal if we stop fighting now. So that prolonged the war, kept Hitler in power, untold millions of people suffered as a result. And at the end of the war, of course, he traveled to Yalta while he was gravely ill, flew halfway around the world to the Crimea, to meet with Stalin and give Stalin the uh, hegemony over Eastern Europe. And, you know, that's bitterly ironic in light of the fact that World War II started because Britain and France had guarantees to protect Poland from German attack. And so they protected Poland from Germany, although they didn't even really do that. The Germans devastated Poland during the war. But uh, they went to war because of Germany's actions against Poland and then ended up giving over Poland to another violent, tyrannical, bloodthirsty regime in the Soviet Union. I mentioned earlier a couple of lesser knowns, John Tyler, chief among them, I mentioned Garfield. When you were researching rating America's presidents, were there any surprises, perhaps a lesser known president who, after you researched this individual, found that they were a great president, although perhaps even forgotten by history? Yes, definitely. Uh, There were several. One of the primary ones is uh, Warren G. Harding, who is almost unanimously rated a failure. And he actually fueled that perception to some degree by several times exclaiming how he was not fit for this job. Uh, This job was too big for him and so on. But, you know, being self-effacing doesn't necessarily mean that you're incompetent. And uh, Harding actually uh, uh, cut regulations, lowered taxes, rolled back big government restrictions on the freedom of speech and uh, other uh, American freedoms that Woodrow Wilson had instituted during World War I. And he got the economy going again, got the nation going again after World War I, such that uh, the 20s, the 1920s are known as the Roaring Twenties because of the economic boom that took place at that time and that we owe to Warren G. Harding. That brings us to John F. Kennedy, who, again, ranks very high on on many of these presidential polls. You give him a five. Your evaluation is that he did little good, but not much damage. My appraisal of Kennedy was that he was long on promise, but I guess just didn't hang around long enough, unfortunately, to realize his potential. When you say did little good, but not much damage, can you elaborate? Sure. Uh, One of the main things that you have with Kennedy is that he was a fiscal conservative, that he also, like Harding uh, and like Trump, cut taxes and regulations, got the economy going again. This is forgotten nowadays because, of course, uh, his brother Ted Kennedy was so much of a big government statist and uh, was on the scene for so much longer as a senator from Massachusetts. But uh, if John F. Kennedy were alive today, it's hard to say that he hard to see how he would have a comfortable place in the Democratic Party because of not only his economic positions, but also of his determination to defend America in the Cold War. Although this is where he loses points because both because of his internationalism and also his ineptitude in regard to, the, for example, the Bay of Pigs incident and others where he gave the impression to Khrushchev and the Soviets that he was weak and that more aggressive action against the United States would not be met with a similar response. And so he's a mixed bag, to be sure. But uh, his, his uh, domestic policies that were very good for the United States have been largely forgotten nowadays. Uh, I think 
probably because they're pretty much overshadowed by the far-left stance of his relatives. Right, and was widely attacked because he was a Catholic, and we're seeing echoes of that today with the recent nomination of a Catholic to the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett. Yes, that's right. Uh, And his answer to that was not entirely satisfactory either. Uh, He said that uh, he was an American, he was a Catholic, and that he was going to judge things on the basis of what was good for America and on the basis of the Constitution. That all sounds good, uh, but the idea that he left lingering in the air was that there was some dichotomy, was that uh, there was some disagreement between being a Catholic and being an American, and he was going to choose being an American over being a Catholic. Uh, Whereas he could have said that there was no real disagreement and that the idea that the Pope wanted to rule the United States through him was just hysteria and had no basis in reality. And so uh, he opened the door to Catholics, uh, Catholic politicians saying that, uh, yes, they have these Catholic principles, but they don't pay any attention to them. And they legislate on the basis of quite different principles. That's what we see with Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and so many others. Uh, There has been a massive loss of a moral perspective in American life, and I think a lot of that is attributable to this dichotomy, this false dichotomy that Kennedy fostered. Because time is tight, I want to jump ahead. I mean, we could we could talk about Johnson, and uh, you you give him a one disastrous for America. Some had argued that he was able to push through many of the things that JFK did not, civil rights and so forth. Although uh, the Great Society and it, that massive welfare program has been certainly seen as being very injurious to the African American family and African American society. But I want to I want to jump ahead to President Obama who I believe gets a zero, and yet he is among the the greatest presidents, according to many of these other polls. And uh, you say that he was very divisive. Let's talk about that. Yeah, well, you know, we have all this racial strife in America nowadays with Black Lives Matter and so on, and uh, all this hysteria over the supposed police targeting of black Americans, uh, when the statistics show that uh, police killings are actually quite often, more often, of white Americans, not just in the matter of numbers, because there are more white Americans, but in the matter of uh, percentages and proportions, there are more police killings of white Americans than black Americans. It's simply false to say that black Americans are, are targeted in some outlandish way by police. But it was Barack Obama, to a tremendous degree, who started this false line of thinking, Um, At a time when racial harmony was on the horizon, when it looked as if America was really going to become a post-racial society, even the election of Barack Obama is an indication of that. Where else in history, in what other country has it ever been that a member of a formerly despised and discriminated against minority becomes the head of state by the election, the free election of uh, the majority of the people? It's extraordinary. And it's shows that America is not racist. But then Obama himself exacerbated racial tensions in several emblematic incidents. Uh, For example, when the uh, black studies professor Henry Louis Gates uh, found himself locked out of his house and he was breaking in a window to get into his house, somebody saw him and called police because they didn't realize that he was the guy who lived there. And the police came in response to this call. And then Gates was belligerent and nasty to the police, so he ended up getting arrested. Now, this was an unfortunate misunderstanding, but the police did not act in the slightest degree uh, in, in, in a wrong manner. They, they arrested him because he was belligerent, would not explain what he was doing there, and they were there in the first place because they had been called by somebody who saw this man breaking into a house. Now, Obama made this into a racial incident. He uh, scolded the police, said that they acted stupidly. He had Gates and the arresting policeman to the White House to talk it over, to have a beer together as if he was the great healer, when actually he was the one who ginned up this as a conflict and planted the idea that this was some sort of police misconduct. And uh, there were several other incidents of that kind 
uh, during his presidency when a thug uh, was uh, uh, chasing a community police officer, community security officer, and the community security officer was being attacked and ended up killing the thug. Uh, Barack Obama said uh, he looks just like my own son, Trayvon Martin, or well, if I had a son, he would look like this fellow. And this uh, just made uh, black Americans believe that they did really have some terrible grievance in the United States with the president of the United States saying that they did and uh, stirring up these resentments. Then perhaps the strife that we're seeing today was inevitable. Right. As you point out, a rush to judgment, not only in the Trayvon Martin case, but also in the Michael Brown case. You also cite him for his apology tour, which uh, kind of interesting because that may have been what prompted his being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, His Nobel Peace Prize, of course, is a joke. Uh, It wasn't based on anything that he had done. He hadn't done anything. And so uh, it it could just as well have been the uh, apology tour as anything else. Uh, But the apology tour was a shameful display in which Obama went and several made several speeches around the world in various countries and uh, essentially did just that, apologized for the supposed excesses and uh, abuses of the United States. And the idea that... uh, the United States had been a great a force for good in the world was nowhere evident in what uh, Obama was saying around the world, uh, quite the opposite. And so you have the, the freest, most egalitarian, most magnanimous, most generous country in the world, and there is head of, its head of state going around the world talking about how bad it is. It was an embarrassing display. No points for Obama for taking out bin Laden? No, because uh, Osama bin Laden had been hunted for quite some time before that. And that operation went on no matter who had been president. It wasn't as if Obama said, we have to get Osama bin Laden when the others, uh, his predecessor, uh, had said, no, we must not. It was actually Bill Clinton who had who admitted that he had chances to get Osama bin Laden and passed them up. Uh, because he claims that innocent people would have been killed in the process of getting him. Uh, And so it had been at least 10 years that various uh, law enforcement and intelligence and military officials had tried to get uh, Osama bin Laden before Barack Obama became president at all. Which brings us to the 45th occupant of the White House, President Donald J. Trump and a 10 for President Trump. This is sure to rile some of my listeners, I'm sure. But again, well, your your explanation as to why President Trump deserves a 10 out of 10. President Trump is the first America first president since Ronald Reagan and the first one before that since before World War II. And he has been a welcome antidote to the nonstop drift toward internationalism, toward socialism, and economic and military decline of the United States in all those years. Uh, What he has done in uh, getting the economy going again and in reinforcing, reestablishing the principle that uh, the welfare of the American people should come first for the American president, uh, for these things, well, all Americans should be grateful to him, even though few are. And how do you respond to the critics who say that he has been uh, perhaps one of the most divisive presidents? Well, he has been, but it's not by uh, virtue of what he's done. It's because he's been incredibly demonized. And there have been uh, extraordinary efforts to defame and destroy him. I mean, obviously, there's been this coup, this attempt to have him removed from power, uh, on the basis of false charges of collusion with Russia and so on. Uh, This kind of thing is unprecedented in American history. There's been the 100% unanimous, unfavorable coverage from the establishment media. The establishment media has been biased for decades, but it's never been this unanimous. And so there are, uh, uh, I can tell you actually recently in my local paper, there was a letter to the editor written by somebody saying, 
that uh, he was going to he, he was going to explain what was wrong with Trump and why nobody should vote for Trump. And everything that he said was a false charge, was something that Trump was claimed to have said but had not said uh, or claimed to have done and had not done. And that is, uh, I think, indicative of what has happened to the president and why um, the the idea that he's been divisive is more a result of things that have happened to him rather than things he's done. What about overreach in the in in terms of uh, the executive branch you mentioned the delineation of powers and what the president should be taking care of trump is is trying to lower the cost of pharmaceuticals and doing a lot of governance through executive orders and so forth does that concern you at all yeah uh, i would prefer that he didn't do that but i understand that under the circumstances there might be no other way to act uh it's unfortunate um but Given the hostility to him in the government and in the Congress, uh, it is uh, just the way it is at this point. But let's also remember that he has been very scrupulous in terms of the riots that have been in various American cities to respect the constitutional constitutional restrictions on sending in federal forces. Uh, He's respected also in view of the coronavirus hysteria, the uh, rights of the states to set their own response to the virus. And so it's not as if he has behaved with a blithe indifference to the restrictions of the Constitution. Uh, Nobody is operating in a perfect situation. And he's, uh, I think, doing the best that uh, making the best of a uh, an extremely bad situation and trying to correct it. Now, I'm trying to remember, but I don't think, other than George Washington and Donald Trump, anyone else received a 10. Am I correct? Calvin Coolidge. Ah, Calvin Coolidge. Ah, all right. Well, uh, and and how are your uh, readers responding to a 10 for Donald Trump? Uh, well, those people who I've heard from are all quite favorable. The, the book has gotten quite a few favorable reviews. I rather think that those who uh, would deplore that, they uh, just are not speaking about the book at all. Uh, That's the way the left operates nowadays. Something that they don't like, they uh, may ridicule or uh, uh, attack for on spurious grounds, but they're not likely to engage on the arguments. I, I can't remember the last time I saw a leftist engage with arguments from those who dissent from the leftist agenda. And and again, uh, to be fair, we should point out there are many Republicans, including Bush's 41 and 43, who received very low marks, zeros. Uh, Richard Nixon, I believe, received a zero. Many Republican presidents received zeros. So this is not an entirely partisan assessment. Not at all. How do uh, people get a copy of Rating America's Presidents, Robert? It's uh, at Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. And at, if you have a brick-and-mortar bookstore around you, it should be there, or you can order it. Robert, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for hanging out. A pleasure. Thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a moment to share a few details about an upcoming episode. There's never been a more important time to focus on our physical well-being, build up our natural immune system, and take control of our health. That's why the mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo every morning. ESS-60 is the consumable form of carbon-60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize winning chemists. ESS-60 from C60 Evo is the purest form of ESS-60 on the market. They produce the formula of ESS-60 that was used in a landmark animal longevity study in Paris, where rats that were fed ESS-60 lived twice their natural lifespans, twice. ESS-60 from C60 Evo is 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. It's truly a mega antioxidant. How does it make me feel? Well, I'm 56 years old and I'm pain-free, pain-free. My energy levels are through the roof and I sleep like a baby. The mighty Aphrodite is noticing the exact same benefits. ESS-60 delivers better health, 
mental clarity, and immune support. Experience the benefits for yourself. To order, go to the notes for this episode and click on the C60 Evo link. Save 5% on your order by entering the code RS1SPEC. RS1SPEC. And if you order based on a monthly refill, you'll save even more. Get your bottle of this miracle molecule ESS60 today from C60 Evo. And again, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the C60 Evo link. Then enter the code RS1SPEC to start saving. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, an investigator of the unexplained and a former actor and Green Beret discuss their encounters with Bigfoot. I looked into a report where a group of air patrolmen and at base all they heard was a, was a gunfire. Well, when they got to the location to investigate what had happened, the patrol truck was turned over. All the rifles had been broken in two. None of the personnel were injured, as far as I remember, but they were found in a kind of state of inability to function. They just couldn't, you know, I tried interviewing a couple of them myself, and what it boiled down to was, nobody's going to believe us, but this is what had happened. And in the report, tracks were found all around the area that comply with ordinary, if we can call it that, Bigfoot tracks. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. New Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.